RX. Today in Studio 360, a jazz superstar's journey deep into classical music. I'm trying to figure out what things do we have in common, what vocabulary can I use? Wynton Marcellus on his third symphony, the Swing Symphony. But I'm a jazz musician, so at the end of the day, I'm going to swing. Why? That's what I like to do. Plus, the album by Kate Bush that blew everybody away, even Big Boy from Outkast. I was like, this is kind of tripped out. It's the production, the, her, the vocal arrangements, her voice was so angelic, I, I, I fell in love with it immediately. Kate Bush's Hounds of Love, that's ahead on Studio 360, right after this. It doesn't Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas here. Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. On today's show, we're featuring two musicians, neither of whom can be tucked neatly into a single genre. One is Kate Bush and her classic album, Hounds of Love, that we'll hear about later. But first, my interview with one of the most famous living jazz players and jazz composers and teachers and more. But Wynton Marcellus isn't just about jazz. In 1997, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his work Blood on the Fields, which was a two-and-a-half-hour jazz oratorio about a couple moving from slavery to freedom. Jesse thinks not of God, not of heaven, not of justice. Only his own freedom is on his mind. It was the first time a jazz piece had ever won a Pulitzer. It almost always goes to classical composers. But even though Wynton Marsalis is best known as a jazz trumpet player, he's also a serious classical composer. He's written four symphonies and a violin concerto, which, by the way, is up for two Grammys. Last year, along with that violin concerto, he released a recording of his Symphony Number no. 3, the Swing Symphony, with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, which he leads, and the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra. Marcellus's love for classical music began in a very unexpected way and place, a streetcar in New Orleans, his hometown. So a guy went into the back of the streetcar, a white trumpet player from a college, which was unusual for a white guy to do. He saw my trumpet case, and he had a trumpet case. So you, wait, as a kid in the in the seventies, you're you're sitting in the back of the streetcar because that's no, required. No, no, you didn't have to. It was not required. You, that's where you it's were. Just, just it wasn't yep. mandated. You yep. you wanted to sit there. Yeah, but it was an area that was not populated with whites. Gotcha. So the, this student, for some reason, stepped across those lines and put his trumpet case down by mine. So I was not that eager to see him. So everybody, of course, started to look at me and him. And he was insistent on telling me something. And I was kind of being not as friendly and fuzzy as I should have been. (laughs) But then he gave me an album. It just absolutely random occurrence. I said, check this album out. And it was an album of a trumpet player named Maurice Andre. And I thought, you know, classical music, okay, man. The famous... uh, Yeah, French. But I didn't know who he was at that time. I was maybe 13. And I, I read the 
the album jacket or something that said that his parents were coal miners. And I thought, man, this people, this guy's people worked in coal mines and he played classical trumpet. I got to put this on when I get home. So I put it on. It was a recording. I start wondering, I wonder if I could play like this, or this, this way that he's playing. I start, I start to learn these concertos off the record. And um, then I, I got into the music, studying, reading about people, about him. Um, you, you trained uh, as a classical trumpet player. You played at age 14, a Haydn concerto with the New Orleans Symphony. One of your first Grammy Awards was for a classical, best classical album. So you obviously are best known for all of your work in jazz. Um, but from the very get-go, classical music has been a big part of who you are and, and more and more your work. Do you think of yourself as one or the other more? You're more jazz musician. Yeah. So I bring the jazz sensibility to to classical music. My father's a jazz musician. I always grew up around the jazz musicians, and I come much more spiritually out of the the spirit of jazz. Right. So you've been running Jazz at Lincoln Center since you were 26 years old. Basically, you get out of Juilliard and you start this new thing. Oh, well, no. I actually didn't graduate from Juilliard. I, I said get out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped out. I joined our Blakey's band when I was 18. Yeah. And um, the Jazz Lincoln Center came along. I didn't really even understand what we were doing. A community of people put it together. Uh-huh. And, you know, we worked on it and nurtured it. I was always there, but it was very much a communal effort. Sure. Uh, at that point, did you think of yourself purely as a jazz music player, or was classical music more of part of your head? I stopped playing classical music at a certain point because I didn't feel I could play on a high enough level and develop my uh-huh. jazz playing. Because uh-huh. I have tremendous respect for uh, for the playing and for the, for the history of our, of our instrument and what right. the technical demands of playing at a certain level. But Lincoln Center, though, given that it is the epicenter of classical music in the United States, I mean, that must have at least, I don't know, that could have daunted you and said, well, no. I'm just going to be a jazz player and that's it. And I'm never going to try my hand at being a classical composer. Well, I only tried to write a classical composition because Kurt Mazur, who was the uh, head of the New York Philharmonic, Philharmonic, but his son was a trumpet player. So it's only because he came to a concert of mine when I was like 28 or 29. I, I had not even written for a big band in jazz and said he wanted me to write for the New York Philharmonic. I started laughing like, man, I, I have never even written for a big band. Well, and any time any artist changes their lane like, whoa, hold on, dude, you're, right. you're, you're supposed to be in this lane. Yeah, and for a black person it's worse and for a man it's worse. If you're a black man and you don't want to be condescended to, you're going to struggle out here. So I tried, even as a younger man— to always be as as truthful as I could be with what I knew about myself at that time. Mm-hmm. Kurt Mazur is the reason I started to play it. He did tease me and mess with me and call me friend. Are you still scared? And interesting about the piece I wrote for the Philharmonic, when I met with him about writing it, he said, I'm going to turn the New York Philharmonic over to you for the night before the turn of the millennium. And I want you to write a piece about our common humanity. And I want you to think about why the strain of relationship between Afro-American music and Anglo-American music has not been continued at all. 
this in Gershwin, this and this, this and that. We talked about Nazism and a lot of subjects that were wow. very close to him. And he revealed personal things to me about, oh, he, of course, grew up in that time and what he saw and what he felt about the importance of, in, of civilization. As a German. As yeah. a German and yeah. about civilization and about what the, the price this required. And he had a profound effect on me. So it took me 10 years to just kind of develop enough technology and understanding. I'm trying to figure out what things do we have in common, what vocabulary can I use. Coming from New Orleans, growing up playing classical music, I knew that we had common ground with ragtime marches, some forms of American popular song, piece of George Gershwin, Bernstein, uh, Duke Ellington. I, I just, so I started right. to try to figure out how to write for these instruments and what was our common musical ground and what ground did I actually know from my upbringing. So then you take young Mazur up on the dare and write this piece for the New York Phil that they performed 20 years ago. And then when I, when I finished the piece and we first did it, I was, man, I was rushing five months. I worked around the clock. Like, yeah. it, it was the worst. I mean, it sounded this, so this is, bad. This is all rise, right? All rise. It yeah. sounded so bad. And the Philharmonic was really, a lot of Philharmonic players I, I went to camp with and knew they were trying to really play it, so I couldn't blame them. And I thought, man, I, I don't think this is for me. I felt like I had committed a public crime. It was long. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. It's a choir, jazz band. It was so ambitious. And, and I saw it on the schedule. We were going to play it with the Czech National Orchestra. So after the New York Philharmonic premiere, which was around around New Year's, December 27, 2029. 99. Yeah, right. 99. Then it was like showed up in 2000, man. And I was like, man, I, can we cancel this? I just the thought of sitting through this again. I worked on it, but, you know, I, did, I didn't change that much of it. I listened to the tape of it. It was so depressing. <laughs> then when we went to play it, you know, it was interesting. Like, it sounded a lot better. You said that uh, the, the three big fundamental concepts in jazz for you are the blues, swing, and improvisation. Yeah. And swing is... is fundamental, yeah. And what does that mean to you? It means that that's the African element of the music where two times are played against each other. So why is African music, I mean, tr just traditional generic African as that a means term. polyrhythmic? Is that, that what that means? That means, yeah, but it means polyrhythmic in the sense of two diametrically opposed concepts meeting and balancing with each other and going from one side to the other. So it doesn't mean three in the context of four. It means three and four. So one thing is going dung 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 You're going to either sides of rhythm night and day together, yin yang, male female together. So both of those things sounding at one time. Right. Western musicians like we, we learn to play a marches in two, a waltzes in three. You're going to play in two and three at once? Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I don't know if I can do that. Interesting. It's a quantum uh, musical form. You know, X and Y simultaneously. Right. That's right? right. That's exactly like, like how quantum computers work. Right. And it was interesting how that plays out. I was playing basketball with my daughter. She's 11. And with one of her friends who was also, who's 12. And the friend told my daughter, she said, if you see me, go right, go left. <laughs> so it was like go. two against one. But it was a, a just an intelligent way to understand the spatial layout. That's interesting. And you're saying that uh, that is out of Africa, Africa's oh, a big yeah. place, but but yeah. but uniquely. You're saying that's what it brought to the world's music. I mean, so many things. I mean, how to deal with the pentatonic scale. African music, largely pentatonic music. I have no idea what you mean. Yeah. Do, 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 dee, 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 do. Like you hear all these kind of melodies. Yeah, yeah. Another thing is the dance beat sensibility. The fact that rhythms represent something in life. 
that there is a symbolism to a rhythm. And then another thing in African music is the supremacy of sound, that inside of a thing is a sound, and that sound is itself an indication of a consciousness. Another thing to be learned from their music, and the deepest thing that we don't understand quite in the West, is that a traditional thing that is renewed over and over and over and over again is reborn every time it's renewed. So we, we struggle with these concepts. It's funny. I was just reading something about neurobiology where that is exactly how I understand, and it's true, that memories are. Literally, each time you retrieve a memory from your mind, it is rewritten. There you go. And sometimes you actually want to rewrite it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you will find all these similarities yeah. uh, throughout the physical universe. Throughout, and it, it's because right. the, the insights into the nature of musics and human beings and arts, they're not things that just came about the last 400 years. Right, right, right. We'll return to my interview with Wynton Marcellus right after this. Welcome back as my interview with Wynton Marcellus continues. Well, let's talk about this swing symphony of yours, which is symphony number three. Okay, well, let's talk about just even how it starts. I start with like a doom, doom, doom. I mean, straight four. One, two, three, four. But I have the drums going ting, ting, ting. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. So even in the first measures, I have that juxtaposition of the three and the four, the African six in the, in the, in the bottom. So this Swing Symphony has seven movements, and uh, St. Louis to New Orleans, uh, Midwestern Moods are the names of some of them, Midnight Moon, right. all these. Um, so were you saying, okay, I'm going to do a history of American music? Yeah, evolution of the swing rhythm. Yeah. A lot of times I'm doing things for people, the musicians who come after me who will be interested in knowing how these things were used in possibilities so that when they can realize things that maybe I don't have the technology to realize, they'll be able to see, okay, ragtime is related to marches and Mingus wrote this and these type of progressions can work with this and you can orchestrate these things this way and the viola section can function like a guitar and these big percussion section can play things based on what Art Blakey and Gene Krupa and this type of drummers played and I don't have to be any good, but I put a lot of the stories of our music inside of the music. And this is how... Ellington interpreted African stuff and how that got into like Copeland. anybody does, yeah, right. like Beethoven right. interpreting dance rhythms or Bach. You have to interpret something. Shakespeare interpreting yep. Greek mythology. There are no Wagner. blank canvases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have to interpret something in the in the human story. A kind of America. I always try to do things I know that I've experienced that I've lived. Uh-huh. So if I go through these movements, I could tell you each one of them what I know specifically about that, and what that experience is. And and would give listeners a sense of the movements. I mean, it really does start out with roots in ragtime and yeah. There's ragtime, maple leaf rag to the to the slow drag, New Orleans slow drag, and show how the orchestration works between the two. Then I end with a New Orleans march, which I tried to arrange for the orchestra in such a way that you could see how the spatial layout of New Orleans jazz improvisation was based on marches.
the All-American Pep is like a 1920s. Happy days are here again. Pre-depression music, a lot of trick drumming and things went on in Charleston rhythm. I used Charleston rhythm in the beginning. I turned around on all kinds of different beats to show how the string section can play really complicated, syncopated things as if they were jazz musicians. Right. So I know orchestra members are really amongst the greatest trained musicians in the world. They want hard things to play. They don't want to play whole notes. I try to write them difficult parts just like what a jazz band would play. And we go from that to a rumba and, and, and Afro-Latin dance craze that hit America in the 1920s. You know, Midwestern Moods is the first time we swing. That's like Count Basie. The trip of Benny Goodman's band, he played with Xavier Cougat's orchestra and Kel Murray's orchestra, three orchestras on the Less Dance program in the 1930s. They represent a kind of panorama of Americana that you could see. And we ended with a kind of Benny Goodman, Georgia jungle. And that's the first time I really wrote out bass lines and have the orchestra swinging in the time with the jazz band. And the first time we played that with the, with the Berlin Philharmonic, it was actually electric. Because, you know, you're making suppositions that, okay, this, if I write them in three, if I put them in a riff up here, if I put the basses and the celli all right here and I put them in four and have the bass line descend, I'm making a lot of calculations that right. I don't know is true because I've never heard it. But when we get to that end section of number three, that was the first time in this symphony, I thought, damn, this thing actually could work together. And by the way, this is the St. Louis Symphony and your band from yeah. Lincoln Center together. So when you're performing with these two different groups together, you and the maestro are up there together conducting? How's the that maestro work? is conducting. I sit in the back of the trumpet section where I always sit. Uh-huh. And um, you don't, and you, I need to concentrate on following Ryan because yeah. I'm I'm the fourth trumpet and our trumpet section and what we have to play. And if I start to look around and think about what a part was played or something, I can't play my but part. How are you fourth trumpet? That's, uh, when I was played the trumpet in the band, fourth trumpet meant you weren't as good as me. I was second trumpet. Yeah, in the jazz band, we're not ordered by uh-huh. uh, our social standing is different. The value of each thing is indivisible. Because now when we sit in an ensemble, we're all one body. So it doesn't matter whether you get the rebound or I get the this right, or the that. Right. It's, it's just what it is. So you're like a director who also acts in his movies or something in that sense, I guess. You know, maybe in the beginning, but now with our band, we all music direct. So if, if because I wrote the music, right. yes, I, I must say things about it. But when we sit under the maestro, he's conducting. So I learned over the years, you can't sit in rehearsal and, and interrupt and just stop and stop the rehearsal and micromanage every detail of the performance you get with the maestro. Right. You only have a certain amount of time to rehearse. You don't have infinite time. Be very practical with the time. And uh, sometimes the maestros will have an instinct better than the instinct you have, even if you wrote it. So to be able to know when to when to follow and how to wait and listen and give things, give things a chance and be a participant is also important. Of we who aren't in jazz think, oh, jazz is more improvisational. Classical music, it's play every note as written. 
I don't know what, to what degree that is or isn't true, but as you're composing these swing symphony and classical pieces, I mean, that must be like improvisation in your head, right? Every composer is improvising. Right. Because they, they right. just write. It's like you write a poem or you write a novel. And you don't know what you're going to do until the next second, really. You have, you have an outline. So, yeah. you know, if you're writing a novel, you're not just freeforming it. It's true. Like you kind of, you... <laughs> it's true. So the larger structure is, the more, the more definitive and clear the pillars have to be. One of the main things I've had to learn is how to, on a page, give very clear, non-fussy instructions. And it's, it's difficult for me. And you mentioned the plan, the basic map or sketch or whatever. When you start, right. you, you have that. I work on that longer than sometimes in the music. Yeah. I'll sketch things out for five months. I'm v- I have a very clear uh, written sketch that I may follow when I start writing it. But the music takes precedent over the written sketch. But I look at that outline over and over again. I write down forms, yeah. meanings, moods, examples. That does sound like writing a book. Having written books, yeah. that sounds exactly like writing yeah, a book. you know. Well, and, and as you're writing... I mean, how do you write? Do you, do you use your trumpet? use a piano? What do you do? Sometimes I use the piano. Sometimes I sing it. If I'm riding in the car a lot because I don't like to fly, so I just am in the car, man. I just get in that in the music. I just start singing it. And sometimes I use the piano. I get a foundation. Whatever I have access to, and how, depending on how late I am, I use what I have. Given that you are in these two forms, classical and jazz, that, that were supposed to be dying for the last six years, along with radio, by the way, uh, <laughs> um, right. and, 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 you know, what is different in the last 25 years is that young people cannot, or 40 years or whatever, can't escape the marketing yeah. bubble. I tell my students, youth is not a quality. Yeah. Like, you're young, and you're going to get old. <laughs> so youth is not your... The, a great trumpet player. Or you, I'm young. I'm a, you're young. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a fact. Yeah. It's a fact of, of, of a cycle that, we, that we're all going through. Yeah. But, but like you're observing, yeah, I think that uh, why does everything have to be following a trend? Like, I, I believe in classical music. I love it. Beethoven's right. music is fantastic. He put a lot into that music. Yeah. Brahms put a lot into his music. Yeah. Shostakovich, oh my God. What I love about this album and, and your music is this uh, proximity of jazz being invented in the first half of the 20th century and, and you know, all this other classical music. I mean, the simultaneous thing, and it feels to me you just like the first half of the 20th century a lot. <laughs> well, I like all of the music. Yeah. You know, I will use any of their music that I want to use. I, I will use uh, avant-garde music, soundscapes, pointillism, right. any right. of that. But I'm a jazz musician, so right. at the end of the day, it. I'm going to swing. I hear you. Why? That's what I like to do. So I, just because a group of academicians decide, oh, you know, we're not swinging. Okay, y'all don't have to swing. Yeah. Oh, you know, we don't have melodies now. You don't have to play melodies. I like it. Yeah, yeah. There's no one right way to do things. There are many ways. So why should the way that I'm perceiving and the way that Coltrane, all these people, why should that way not exist in only this way? So uh, for me, the opportunity to interface with more and more people and expand uh, the world that I'm able to be in and to play with so many great musicians of all ages and be a part of that, that takes precedent over some theorems or some whatever is the, the next fair. And also trying my piece not to be topical. I don't want a topical issue. I want to deal with the human issue. Yeah. You know, you know. And are you making any, working on anything new now? Yeah, I'm always working on stuff. 
What's what's the big well, thing you're I working on? I just recorded a piece called the Ever Funky Lowdown. And it uses the kind of funk vocabulary that I grew up playing in the 70s, but with New Orleans melodies like musicians like my father and James Black, what they were playing in the 60s. And it, it has a, a host called Mr. Game, and he takes you through all the ways I'm going to exploit you to accept my narrative. And Mr. Game is an actor on... Mr. Game is Wendell Pierce. You see, trust me, you are thinking about right and wrong and all that save your nonsense. Everything is relative. Wendell Pierce was on this show. Yeah, Wendell is my boy. So, you know, we went to high school. He's a little younger than me. But I absolutely love him. Once again, it's really? familiar. I'm surprised. Oh, yeah. Man, I would have guessed you're him. the same age. But... He's a little younger than me. Oh. And you know how high school is. When you get up in the 50s, we all are the same yeah, age. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Three years <laughs> yeah. apart? Uh, yeah, right. you know. Yeah. Keep uh, fighting all the good fights you're fighting. Yeah, man, it's great. You thank know, you. Thank you for talking. Pleasure. With me, you know, having me much love and respect. That story was produced by Studio 360's Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. This year at the Grammys, Wynton Marcellus's work is up for no fewer than three awards. Best Contemporary Classical Composition for his Violin Concerto in D Major. And off that album, the violinist Nicola Benedetti is also nominated for Best Instrumental Solo. Plus, Winton and his jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra's Una Noche con Ruben Blades is up for Best Latin Jazz Album. Our next story about a groundbreaking musician is from our project with DJ Colleen Cosmo Murphy's program, Classic Album Sundays. The series we do is called This Woman's Work. We've highlighted classic albums by female artists that have had lasting impacts on the culture. This time, the subject is the artist from whom we took the name of the series, the singer-songwriter Kate Bush. This woman's work was a single on her sixth album. Great God, you can stand outside this woman's work, this woman's But today we're plunging into the album just before that, Hounds of Love, which came out in the fall of 1985. Here's Colleen. When I was a teenager, I remember flicking through my Aunt Pauline's vinyl LPs and being amazed by her adventurous collection that included ABBA, the Cabaret soundtrack, and Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. But there was one artist that truly intrigued me with her innovative sounds, arrangements, and a dramatic soprano that was unlike any other voice I had ever heard, Kate Bush was miles away from any of the mainstream pop and rock blaring from my transistor radio. Kate's high-pitched voice and poetic lyrics sounded both vulnerable and strong at the same time. And the music itself was a unique hybrid that fused pastoral acoustic folk and progressive rock with dramatic Baroque pop arrangements and art rock edginess. The lyrics at times embraced the childlike wonder of Peter Pan, but also a liberated young woman's views on sex. Like me, outcast rapper, songwriter, producer, Big Boy 
also has a family member to thank for his discovery of Kate Bush, his own Uncle Russell. I was like the only one, like my uncle was a real eclectic guy and he kind of just, you know, had all types of music, you know, from Peter Gabriel and Genesis and Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and he turned me on to all of that type of music and I was just kind of just diving deep into all of it. I just wanted to, to get into more and so he had like all of a record so I would just you know, kind of put it on the turntable or a cassette and, and listen. And I just was bouncing around from album to album and just kind of just got a love for it from there. American radio stations famously stick exclusively to one format, like classic rock or top 40 or country. So it's no wonder that Bush flummoxed radio programmers. They just didn't know how to shoehorn her into playlists, so she didn't get the radio play. But Kate Bush was a household name in her native United Kingdom. Her first LP, The Kick Inside, released in 1978 when she was just 19 years old, reached the top 10 in many album charts throughout Europe. And it wasn't only the album that was a huge success, which eventually went platinum, but also its lead single, Wuthering Heights, which was inspired by Emily Bronte's novel of the same name. Kate Bush performed it five different times on the UK's most important music TV show, Top of the Pops. She also performed the song on Saturday Night Live in the US. But even with this massive promotional push, her debut album failed to win over the American audience. But Kate Bush did have cult fans in the USA. Not only my Aunt Pauline and Big Boy's Uncle Russell, but also mainstream musicians like Prince and Madonna. So Kate Bush did manage to draw a small but loyal fan base in the U.S., an unlikely conglomerate of people who appreciated the artistic boundary pushing and who themselves defied boundaries. Americans like Big Boy. I was like, this is kind of tripped out. This, the production, the, the vocal arrangements, her voice was so angelic. I fell in love with it immediately. So it really just took me on a deep dive, really. You know what I mean? The melodies and the layers of music that she laid on her songs, it was just levels to it, as well as the storytelling aspect of it. We'll be back with more of our story about Kate Bush's album Hounds of Love right after this. Studio 360. We're back to Studio 360 with our story about one of singer-songwriter Kate Bush's most enduring albums. Here with that is my colleague, Colleen Cosmo-Murphy. It was her fifth studio album, 1985's Hounds of Love, that secured Kate Bush a broader American fan base. And this was her first album to break the Billboard Top 40. 
College and commercial radio support helped. So did an array of cleverly produced videos on heavy rotation on the nascent MTV network and a big push at retail chains like the New England-based Strawberries Records and Tapes where I was working as a teenage record clerk. And then there was a the music itself. You like my Hounds of Love balance whimsical and adventurous lyrics with an intricate and lush sound that made use of state-of-the-art recording and mixing. It had big pop hooks and energizing rhythms, and the effect was long-lasting. Hounds of Love attracts new fans even decades later. American singer-songwriter Julia Holter was born the year before the album was even released and discovered Hounds of Love in a more roundabout 90s fashion. I can't remember if it was from a friend or if I found it online, but I think a friend was listening to this woman's work and she had also introduced me to Napster. <laughs> so I like downloaded this woman's work. Pray God you can go I was really moved by it. I kept like listening to it over and over again because it was so beautiful and strange to me. Like I guess it made me feel uncomfortable for some reason. I think her voice was just so intense. I get out of my car. This is so interesting. Like, I was really captivated by how strange it sounded to me. And it's funny to think that it would sound so strange, but it is strange. I mean, it's really mysterious music, you know? It was very um, emotional, very sentimental, like, really sweet, and it was complex. Her music holds, like, the emotional complexity of life. Running Up That Hill, which is like one of her biggest hits, was pretty powerful for me. Yeah, like sixth grade, riding my bicycle, uh, just kind of pedaling to it, you know what I mean? I, I didn't really know what it was about or whatever, but the rhythm just caught me. It was moving, you know what I'm saying, as, as far as like the patterns and the rolls in the drum, you know what I mean? It was, uh, it kind of reminded me of, of a steady march. Plus me riding my bike to school, going up and down hills. It was like I used it as motivation to get to school on time. You know, by the time they brought the synths in, uh, it's kind of strike a chord in you. Like the music is supposed to uh, evoke emotion and the, the emotion that this music brought out of me was just that of just pure joy, man. I just loved it, you know what I mean? It makes you feel good and that's what music is supposed to do. 
We of course had the big hit single Running Up That Hill, taken from the Hounds of Love album. What inspired that song? It's very much about love and the power of love and the frustration of misunderstanding within relationships and that if a man could become a woman and a woman a man within their relationship that perhaps they'd understand a bit more about each other. And that's the deal with God? Yes. It's in the trees. It's coming. All of these little details that come through in, in Hounds of Love, something that always strikes me is this little detail of the like do 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 Those do do do's is like so good <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> so delicious. It's not just the instrumentation, but also the focus on um, EQing, like on the vocals, the way that the vocals sound. So um, much attention is paid to all of these little details that really make it special. When we think of Kate Bush, we usually think of her voice, her melodies, and also her flair for drama and performance, the dancing, the acting in and directing of her own videos. But we don't always consider Kate Bush the producer, even though she has produced every single one of her studio albums since her fourth LP, The Dreaming, her most experimental record yet. I see the people working, and see it working for them. And still I want to dreaming, but then I find it hurt. When it came time to record her next LP, Hounds of Love, she built her own recording studio and a barn on her parents' farm, where her mum would offer the musicians the quintessential English tea and sandwiches. What were you looking for? What makes your studio special for you? Well, it's got all the environmental things that we want, the right kind of sounding rooms, and we've got all the outboard equipment, and the right kind of speakers and everything. Mm. It's uh, what we want, which is why we did it. Kate took 18 months to complete the album, with 12 months spent on overdubs and mixing alone. She recorded with Del Palmer, her bass player, engineer, and romantic partner. Along with Trevor Horn and Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush was one of the early ambassadors of the Fairlight CMI. Now, for my money, the star of the show was this, the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument. It's a uh, $26,000 worth of electronic wizardry that's been developed over the last five years by Kim Ryrie and Peter Vogel. And she wrote most of the album on that early synth, along with the Lynn drum machine, and afterward would replace some of the electronic sounds with traditional instruments. The slower work pace meant she could get the sounds and the intricate details just the way she wanted. It's so obvious how much fun she has with recording, and I just think that that's like, an artist who is successful, who totally does whatever she wants. And that includes her use of technology that was rare for a woman to be using hands-on at the time. The different layers that she put in the music, it wasn't just straightforward. The way that um, a track could completely change into something else in the middle of, of the song totally changed the direction. It's just, it was adventurous, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm a firm believer and, you know, organic vibes and, and her albums just seem totally organic to me. Like, uh, I like to say, uh, organically created, never genetically modified. 
You know, that's how you get the purest form of music. stands for comfort was like one of my favorites I just love the eeriness of it it's just the sound the soundscape man it was just like you know the music is cinematic you know what I mean you can kind of imagine yourself in like a neverland if you want to call it that you know what I'm saying and kind of just lose yourself into her voice and then famously there were Kate Bush's pipes I think it's just the the different levels you know what I'm saying she can go super low until hitting one of the highest notes uh, possible, like the range, her vocal range is incredible and impeccable, and it's so clean. You know what I mean? Her vocals are, like I said, it's, it's angelic. Like you can't mimic that. That's definitely uh, a gift she was born with, and she's very talented, man. Much like Joni Mitchell, Kate Bush's melodies take unexpected twists and turns. that kind of the unfamiliarity of where the melody was going to go, and also the production. Hounds of Love is a highly structured song cycle that manifests as two suites, and this worked well with a two-sided vinyl format. Kate later said on French television that she thought of the two sides as two different albums. Side one is called Hounds of Love, and it's comprised of five songs linked together through the theme of love and relationships and feature the album's four hit singles. Side two is entitled The Ninth Wave and is a continuous narrative stretched over seven songs that tells the story of a girl struggling to stay alive in the sea whilst awaiting rescue. It's me. Get out of the cold water. It's me. Something. It's me. Someone. I asked Big Boy if Hounds of Love's two distinct musical suites was a source of inspiration for Outkast's double album Speaker Box, The Love Below, that feature one disc recorded by Big Boy and the other by his Outkast partner, Andre 3000. I guess it's, uh, subconsciously it was there. Like I said, I mean, we're influenced by everything, you know what I mean? So I've never thought about it that way, but that's a great observation. Songs like Jig of Life, you know what I mean? That's like one of my all-time favorites. Hello, old lady. I know your face well. At one point during the recording of Hounds of Love, Kate Bush got writer's block, so she went to Ireland to explore her Celtic heritage. She made a temporary move to Ireland's Windmill Studios, a favorite of U2, where she recorded some of the sounds of Ireland, such as the Boreon drum, the fiddle, Celtic whistles, and Ilian pipes, which you can hear on Hello Earth and Jacob Life. where it just breaks down 
to the fiddle and then they have a hold down, you know what I mean? It's incredible to, to do things like that in a song and take the listener on an adventure. And that's what music is about, you know, um, giving people that escape from life to kind of feel themselves and, and, and go into their heads and just kind of dig deep down in their souls and, and figure out who they are. I love Dream of Sheep. It's so cinematic, and, you know, if you want to kind of curl up and, and lock lips with your girlfriend, you can do that. And they smell like sweet. And they say they take me home. Julia Holter has her own favorite track from the Ninth Wave Suite on side two of Hounds of Love which is sort of the most kind of unassuming song, I guess, or it's just so sort of more simple and chill, but it's the morning fog. It's so crazy, like, how it makes me feel. And it's really warm and like you feel like you're supported by your loved ones or something. Like it feels like someone's there for you. It has a very strong warmth to it that is powerful and feels like love or something, you know, something really like metaphysical or something. Kate Bush is a big horror film buff. The song Hello Earth was inspired by Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, and the title track opens with a scene from 1975's Night of the Demon. It's in the trees. It's coming. When I was a child, All aspects of visual performance fascinated Kate Bush, and she studied mime and dance with Lindsay Kemp, who also taught David Bowie. So it should come as no surprise that the multi-talented performer had an interest in getting behind the camera when it came time to filming her own epic videos, which were sometimes like short films themselves. Bush directed two of the album's videos. The Big Sky was nominated for Best Female Video at the 1987 MTV Video Awards and featured her joyous and uninhibited dancing, which was a stark contrast to the overly choreographed, sexualized dancing of other popular videos of the time. Her video for Hounds of Love was inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's film The 39 Steps and sees her using her Lindsay Kemp training as she and her lover try to escape capture from the soldiers of order. For Outcast Big Boy, Kate Bush is the pinnacle. She's my favorite because she showed me uh, different ranges of sound, you know, the production, it just showed me layers, 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 and how to tell a story with music, the depth to the thought of the songs, and then how she kind of brings it to life, you know, talking about cloud busting. Yes, it's very much inspired by a book that I found on the shelf about nine years ago, and it's written by a man called Peter Reich, and the book's called A Book of Dreams. And it's very much written from a child's point of view about his father. And uh, it's really about the magic of that relationship and, and how much his father meant to him. Um, 
and they have a very special thing they can do. They go up onto a hill with a machine that his father's built and they make it rain. Talking about weather manipulation before people even knew about that. You know, cloud seeding and things like that. Like, that shit is crazy. Julia Holter was directly inspired by Kate Bush and Hounds of Love during the recording of her most recent album, Aviary. I was really stuck on this song called Le Jeu To You. I like heard this like bass line in my mind. I was like, oh, what is that? I was hearing the sound of the, the timbre of the bass from Mother stands for comfort. really love the way that that sounds. I think that's what we need. We need that like fretless bass and really what it is is like a a second melody. It's almost like a duet of the bass and her voice singing. I want to try that and I had already recorded a lot of the song but I wrote to Devin Hoff who's an incredible bass player that I've worked with for years and I was like, I'm really into the sound of the bass on Mother, like that timbre. How do I know what I think until I say Aaron's nameless treasure? I'll be on my way again. Yeah, I just love how it works in that song, the way the bass interacts with the vocal and how much of a mood it is. It's like such a mood. Hounds of Love remains Kate Bush's most commercially successful album, and it even pushed out Madonna's Like a Virgin from the number one spot on the UK album charts. Its marriage of artistically unbounded production and sophisticated storytelling with driving rhythms and a pop sensibility made it stand out from anything else on the radio in the mid-80s. And it still stands out. This record will continue to be important because it... It feels like this one person's vision. It's very specific and intense and very moving and complex. I don't know if I said I wanted to be like her because I'm a man, but I wanted to have that same prowess as an artist to be diverse like she was. You know what I mean? Not to be classified as one thing. You're in a a lane all to your own and you kind of write your own story. Our story on Hounds of Love by Kate Bush was produced by Colleen Cosmo-Murphy with Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez. The interview clips of Kate Bush are from the British show's Old Grey Whistle Test and Music Box. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. Our production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra lopez Monsalve, Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Evan Chung. Morgan Flannery. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. I mean, he revealed personal things to me, and he had a profound effect on me. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... You can't send someone off to die on evidence like that. A movie without romance, gunshots, or any kind of exotic locations. Just 12 people in a room talking. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. How 12 angry men made the judicial process thrilling. Our latest American icon, next time on Studio 360.